Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Now playing only in theaters. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. This fall, we'll be airing a rebroadcast of some of my favorite episodes from our archives. This week, we're featuring two powerhouses of the political field, Congresswoman Katie Porter and former California State Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez. Gonzalez resigned from her position in the Assembly in January 2022 but continues to fight for union causes as the executive secretary-treasurer of the California Labor Federation. Here's my conversation with the progressive leader from 2021. My guest today falls into one of my favorite categories, politicians to keep an eye on because they're doing amazing things. Lorena Gonzalez represents California's 80th Assembly District in Southern San Diego. She was first elected in 2013 and got into politics after years of working as a labor leader. She's a progressive Democrat who supports working and middle-class Californians with an impressive list of wins, including paid sick leave, overtime for farm workers, protecting janitorial workers against sexual assault, automatic voter registration at the DMV, diaper tax relief, the list goes on and on. Growing up, Assemblywoman Gonzalez saw firsthand what government can do, or not do, to help working-class families. She was raised by a single mom who put in long hours as a nurse to support Gonzalez and her two older brothers. Today, Lorena Gonzalez has five kids in a blended family with her husband, Nathan Fletcher. He's also in San Diego politics as a county supervisor. Gonzalez and Fletcher are both Democrats, but that wasn't always the case. He was a Republican. He was actually a Republican Assembly member. And at the time, I was the head of the AFL-CIO in San Diego. And he was always a a, a much more moderate Republican. But through the process, when he ran unsuccessfully for mayor, we, we had a ton of discussions. This is before we started dating or anything. And 
He saw the light. He became a Democrat. Then we started dating. (laughs) Then we got married. that, That makes sense to me. The first thing I think about when I look at your biography and so forth, beyond your family, the thing that strikes me most is, my goodness, you have the trifecta of academic credentials here. Stanford undergrad, Georgetown Masters, UCLA Law School. You have the credentials to have done a lot of things for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you're certainly the whole Goldman Sachs material academically and everything. And yet, labor organizer, state assembly, what is it? What was the calling for you that you wanted to forego taking care of yourself in order to take care of other people? I put a lot of that on my mom. So my mom, for most of my life, was a single mom. She just worked her ass off. I I don't know how else to put it. I don't ever remember her having a 40-hour work week. She worked 50, 60, 70 hours a week, multiple jobs at times, all to make life better, not just for me and my brothers, um, to give us an opportunity to go to college and do things, but also to make life better for her patients, for people she was serving. She taught me that in life, what actually matters isn't how much money you have in your bank account or or how many trips you get to go on, but how much you do to save the world. And we laugh now, my husband and I, and it's it's the question, do you want to savor the world or save the world? We're still on the save the world trajectory. At some point, you know, it's everybody's right to take a step back and savor the world a little, but there's just so much work to do. And I think that I saw that and I saw hardworking people and saw what they go through and just wanted to ensure that I could try to make other folks' lives a little easier. Now, there's a variety of bills and so forth that you've authored or co- authored, and I wanted to just hop through a couple of those because I find all this stuff very fascinating. Assembly Bill 5, requiring workers classified as employees rather than independent contractors for more labor protection. Take me through that. What's the difference? Well, over the last maybe decade, uh, a lot of employers have taken advantage of loopholes in the law and classified what would be traditional employees as independent contractors. And yes, it's cheaper for the employer, but The cost that it puts on both the employee and society as a large has to be taken into account. So when you're an independent contractor, the employer does not pay their portion of your Social Security or Medicare. That's 7.5%. You're responsible for the full 15% of those two things. They're not required to provide health care. They're not required to give you paid sick leave, paid family leave that we have in California. They don't have to provide you with workers' compensation. You don't have the right to a lot of civil rights and, and sexual harassment laws as an independent contractor. You're viewed as an individual small business, not a worker of of the company. So obviously, there's a number of benefits. And most important during COVID, which we found is nobody's paying into unemployment insurance for you. So if you lose your job, you're on your own. So it is this idea, and I can imagine, and for some people, it's an important piece to be an independent contractor, to be a true small sole proprietor, a small business. And we have those, you know, you may be a plumber or you might be a a doctor that has your own business and and you're on your own. So for example, a a, a doctor uh, is an independent contractor. He would then become whose employee to qualify for the benefits you're enumerating here? Well, in doing AB5, we took what was called in California, a decision by the California State Supreme Court, Dynamex, and we applied that. It was going to be precedential, basically. And so we applied it to our entire labor code. And we said, but there will be exceptions. And we took the reasoning in the decision that said, if you have the ability to bargain for yourself, if you truly require a certain certificate, education, you have the ability to 
to um, provide these things for yourself, we're less concerned, right? Because what happens is a doctor doesn't need these benefits necessarily. They self-insure, they self-provide them. And then if something goes wrong, society's not on the hook, right? It's not like some taxpayer-funded program. They can actually take care of themselves. If a janitor is classified as an independent contractor and doesn't have those benefits and they lose their job, they're going to end up on state-sponsored support. We, we don't want people to, to be homeless or go hungry, so we do provide a safety net, but they don't have somebody paying into the system. There's no social contract that was established. And those companies who are misclassifying workers are at a competitive advantage over companies who are abiding by the law. So this is just strengthening the existing law. And a lot of this came about because of the upswing of all these tech companies that think if you're hired through an app, you're an independent contractor, you're your own business. It's, right. And that's yeah. what I'm curious about is that, is that let's say I have a building, an office building. Are you telling me that they will hire janitorial staff and call them independent contractors and not call them employees? So usually what would happen if you hired a building is you hire a janitorial company and you you don't know, you have the building, you hire a company, that's all fine. But the people working for the company, they would be independent contractors when they're actually right. just employees who have been misclassified. Give us the most vivid example of who the bill was aimed to help. The bill was aimed to help delivery drivers for Uber, for example, right? Yep, I carry my Uber Eats bag. I'm being told where to go, when to go. I, I can't negotiate with Uber over my pay. I can't negotiate with Uber over whether or not I want to take a certain job. And uh, Uber says I'm a small business and I have to pay for my own expenses, for my own insurance. Um, I have to pay my own taxes. There's no payroll taxes taken out. Uber investors and Uber owners get very, very, very wealthy and billionaires and the workers making subminimum wage. Another area is in 2017. This one was very sensitive to me because I was involved tangentially, but I was part of drafting and circulating petitions in terms of lead paint in the schools of New York. And in 2017, you wrote a bill requiring all K-12 through schools to test their drinking water for lead. Did your concern for this issue in 2017 was the trigger that you're a mother? What was the genesis of that? Obviously, I, a lot of what I do is the fact that I am a mom, and I'm a mom first, right? So I approach a lot of issues that we're facing as um, any mother would. Yes, you send your kids. I send my kids to public school. I, I hope and pray um, that they're safe, that nobody's going to gun them down, that nobody's going to um, poison them, that nobody's going to sexually abuse them, and that they'll get a good education at the same time. So there's a lot of trust we put into our schools. And we had a situation in my district where it, it was a really odd situation. A dog, they put water out and the dog they reacted to it. And so they ended up testing the water, and um, the water had lead in it. And this is like New York City. We've we fought for years in my community in particular, which is a, a Latino working class community, to replace lead paint in the houses. We took lead out of candy. We know that it poisons children and disproportionately poor children. And so when we found it in the water fountain at school, it was a, a shell shock for me because the one thing you send your kid to school and you're like, don't drink the sugary drinks, go have some water, go drink some water, drink from the water fountain, drink more, you know, and, and like how many times- They would have been better off drinking Diet Coke. Exactly. And I thought, oh my gosh, for my own kids, you, you think of that thought, like how many times do I say, okay, after PE, make sure you drink some water from the water fountain, you know, hydrate. Well, 
little did I know we're sending kids to poison themselves. So what we did is, and some of these schools are very, very old. And um, we said, it's time to test it for lead. And we got a lot of pushback. Everybody's like, well, is it makes sense to test? I'm like, how can we not test when we know that there's lead in the water? Who on earth would be opposed to testing the drinking water of your children in the school? Who? People who know that if it's positive, they're going to have to pay to replace the pipes. Right. What was the upshot of that in 2017? Did the testing lead to any remediation of the problem? Did they rip the pipes out of certain schools or what happened? Did they filter? Was filtration the answer? Filtration. Um, they replaced. They brought in water uh, stations to some. And what happened is there there had already been a, a number of school bonds that had passed, both statewide school bonds as well as local school bonds. And what happened is as soon as they started finding this, then, you know, when you pass a school bond, there's a lot of things you can spend it on. And, and San Diego Unified, for example, had, well, we had some football fields and some lighting that needed done. And we wanted, you know, some HVAC um, done in the classrooms. All important things. But if you find lead in the water, guess what? Replacing those water fountains gets to the top of the list in money that was already going to be spent. It becomes prioritized. So the world didn't end. The water has been tested and now it's being fixed. California Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez. If listening to interviews with up-and-coming politicians gives you a sense of hope, be sure to check out my conversation with Texan Christina Sinsoon who co-founded the Workers' Defense Project. I think that there's an image of Texas that people have that is not the true Texas story. When people think about Texas, they usually think about us in a singular way of people like my white grandfather, which was a cowboy. And the truth is that the state is, you know, you have a city like Houston. It's one of the most diverse cities in the entire country. You have one in three Texans that are immigrants or children of immigrants. Forty percent of the state's population is Latino. It's majority people of color at this point. Hear more of my conversation with Christina Sinsoon in our archives at heresthething.org. After the break, Lorena Gonzalez talks about cheerleaders and her fight to get California's biggest sports teams to pay them like the professionals they are. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. 
Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Can I give you a real incentive to lean into your decision to start working out and eating better? I'm Carl, co-founder of Body. That's B-O-D-I. And right now, if you sign up for a one-year subscription to Body, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you 65% off. Look, I know it's not easy to get fit and lose weight, especially if you're trying to figure it out by yourself. But we make it simple. Just follow a program for 20 to 30 minutes day by day and lose 5 to 10 pounds a month. We have over 120 programs that have been tested and proven to work, and almost 300,000 five-star reviews in the App Store to prove it. Body also has complete eating plans and thousands of healthy, delicious recipes. So stop guessing and start seeing results with Body, and I'll give you 65% off your annual membership right now so you save big on the app that CNN underscored named Best Fitness App. So don't wait. Sign up for a year of Body and save 65%. Just go to Body.com. That's Body with an I.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In 2018, Lorena Gonzalez co-authored a bill which put California on a path to generate 100% of its electricity from clean, carbon-neutral energy sources by 2045. She says the state is on track to meet its goal even sooner. We're already almost there, i got to be honest. We're going to um, get to 100% renewable quicker than we had imagined or hoped, but that's because we required it. By way of what? By way of large-scale solar farms that you're seeing go up, wind energy that you're seeing. We're exploring other forms, biomass, pup stations, things to provide renewable energy sources throughout California. Obviously, rooftop solar plays a, a role in that, but we have really adopted in California an approach that is getting us, on any given Saturday, about 80 to 90% of the energy coming through our grid is now coming from renewable sources. How did you get involved with the cause of the cheerleaders in the NFL? Uh, oh, God. I guess, you lost, I guess you lost your box seats at the Chargers game. I, I was not a popular person at the Chargers, I'll tell you that. Uh, what happened, to be honest, is you, you got to figure, I, I was actually a Stanford cheerleader. So I was a cheerleader and a labor leader, right? I know how to use a bullhorn and a megaphone. Um, it's it's a rare combination. So when I had read at the time, the Raiderettes, the, the cheerleaders for the Raiders had started, a couple of them started a lawsuit against the Raiders for not paying them minimum wage because they were classified actually as independent contractors. And so I had <laughs> talked to the attorneys and I'm an attorney. So I talked to their attorneys and I was like, this is outrageous. They're basically almost paying to do this fantastic job. Yes, it's a job women want. It's a job that that is um, respected to a certain extent, but it's still a job. Everybody else on the football field, it doesn't matter if you're the physical trainer. It doesn't matter if you're the person picking up the trash. It doesn't matter if you're selling the peanuts, if you're the coach, if you're the player, you're all being paid like an employee. And these cheerleaders were being um, given a stipend, being penalized. They, they signed an employment contract with the NFL. So I said, this is easy. We're going to make them by code, employees so that they have basic labor protections in California. And so I remember the first time I introduced it. And of course, a lot of journalists were more fascinated with the fact that I was a cheerleader at Stanford in one of those pictures. And so we were like, all right, here's a picture. Now can we talk about this really important issue? And um, oh, God. and then my favorite part of the story is having to go to then Governor Jerry Brown. And he's, anyone who knows, he's a little 
I don't want to say crotchety. You just never quite know what you would get with. He's with a no nonsense guy. He's no, a no nonsense guy. No nonsense. Guy. And I mean, I'm like, oh, God, I got to talk to him about cheerleaders. <laughs> like, this is going to. And so I said, um, we were at a dinner together. And I said, Governor, when you have a chance, I want to talk to you about this bill I'm working on. It has to do with professional cheerleaders. And he said, I was a cheerleader. And I was like, are you kidding me? He apparently. <laughs> As luck would have it. He was a cheerleader in college or high school. And so. I was like, oh, I think I'm going to get this one. But we did. I'm very proud of that. So what was that path? Was it directed at an individual team? Or was this league-wide? You wanted the NFL to recognize. Was the situation in San Diego duplicated at all the NFL teams? Oh, well, none of them were getting paid? None of the NFL cheerleaders to this day, only in California, do they have rights as an employee. There was a bill actually introduced in New York as well, but it never made it through. So it was... Any professional sports teams in California, the dancers or cheerleaders have to be treated and have the basic labor protections of an employee. So that includes, of course, the the Chargers, the Rams, the Lakers. It was basketball and football, the 49ers. So now I was going to ask about that because I go to Knicks games or I used to, and those women were out there not getting paid either. No, and a lot of them. But they are now. Only in California. There's a national fight still against the NFL. There have been a lot of lawsuits. A lot of the teams have lost lawsuits, and um, there's been a lot more attention to it. There's a couple documentaries and issues pertaining to it. We'd like to see it, of course, on the national level. So how did the lawsuit work in California and not in the other states? Well, it was settled. And so in, in other states, it's been settled as well. But so often when you settle these lawsuits on worker issues, the judge accepts a settlement. So it makes whole the workers who are suing, but it doesn't force companies to fix the problem. So it's kind of like an ongoing invitation to sue without fixing the problem. And that's why sometimes you need legislation to come in and say, all right, nobody can do this. This is enough. Now, in 2019, you passed legislation that extends the statute of limitations for survivors of sexual abuse who are seeking justice in court. Now, I think most of our listeners know what a statute of limitations is, but I want you to explain as an attorney the reason for a statute of limitations in most cases. And there are some crimes, I believe, like murder, where there is no statute of limitations. But where there is a statute of limitations in place, why is there one? There's often a statute for a variety of reasons. One, um, you can't preserve evidence. So, you know, I could say, hey, when 20 years ago, you stole this TV from me. Well, that TV doesn't exist. Witnesses probably don't exist. It's hard to pin that down. People die. They move away. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or they forget. I mean, quite frankly, you know, I can't remember 20 years ago. Right. Probably. So to have integrity in the trial of the witnesses, you need to do it in a certain time frame. Mm -hmm. But childhood sexual assault is unique. So there's some things that made it unique and made the statute of limitations very damaging. Number one, so often the primary witness, the child themselves, uh, suppresses it, basically, doesn't think about it, doesn't um, come to terms with it until later in life when they're dealing with uh, a failed marriage or depression that it comes out. And so sometimes, you know, that's the primary witness is a person who was assaulted, if you will. And what we had with childhood sexual assault is actually a lot of people knew it was happening. We actually have official documents like the church, the Boy Scouts, they actually had complaints that were filed that were put away that there still exist. And you still need all of this proof, if you will, to establish a case. But it allows time to have passed and yet still victims to get some sort of justice. So I understand you had some choice words for Elon Musk <laughs> when he was going to move his company from California. Is that true? 
Yes, but I want to put it in context. I, look, I, my mouth gets me in trouble. I, I'd lie if I said otherwise. I, I say exactly what I think and what I mean. But you have to look in context. Elon Musk has made a crap load of money off of California taxpayers. And if people don't understand why, it's because everything he makes is subsidized by taxpayers. So the Teslas that flew off the market, those all had taxpayer rebates on $100,000 cars. I mean, people who didn't need the rebates were given them because we want to encourage electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. His solar panels and solar storage have been highly subsidized by the state of California. So taxpayers have helped make him a billionaire in California. We have really supported Elon Musk. Bingo. And coming from the labor movement, he hasn't really been too good on worker issues. So he's been slapped down by the NLRB. He's he's anti-worker. He's had really some big safety problems in his facility. So I've always been a little irked. Like, here we are giving you taxpayer dollars, and you can't even abide by the law when it comes to union organizing. That upsets me. Well, during the pandemic, he decided, forget it. I don't like these orders. I'm going to open up my factory in Fremont. It doesn't matter what the county public health officer is saying. And you're talking about an area where we had tons of Latinos dying from COVID. We had the spread. It was at roaring at the time. So he brings back his workers and he says, if anyone stops him, he's going to take his jobs to Texas. I mean, at some point, look, every elected official in California should be saying, I won't say it here, but yeah. you know, go go away, Elon Musk. Bon voyage, Elon Musk. <laughs> there is a point where, where as elected officials, and this kills me, it doesn't matter who it is who is getting things from us, right? Leadership is also being able to make those tough decisions and say, hey, all right, we like your product. We like what you're doing for the environment. But by the way, we've got rules and we're going to it doesn't matter who you are. You're going to stick by the rules, too. And, and it, it irks me that so um, many of our rules in, in California, in this nation, we apply them disproportionately to communities like mine and not to billionaires like Elon Musk. And I think we have to be stronger about that. He has a lot of fans on uh, Twitter and I got a lot of backlash on that. It comes with the territory. It does. Well, let me just say this. You are such an amazing woman. And all your credentials and your accomplishments and your passion, you're somebody who, uh, it's still your task to save the world, I'm afraid, and not savor the world. <laughs> you have to you have to postpone the savoring of the world a little bit longer, you and your husband. You have to keep going. There's no turning back. you got to keep running and keep doing this great work you're doing. You've been doing amazing work, and you are such a role model. And we wanted you on because people spoke so highly of you. Andra Day, the actress, was talking about the work you did with that school down there. Robert E. Lee. <laughs> yeah, in San Diego. You can imagine, yes, because we care about our history. You had the name of the school changed. You and other people were working on that cause? I did. And this was before we kind of um, started attacking the Confederate name issue. So I, I got to see what people said before they realized it was politically incorrect. But you don't have a school in San Diego named after Robert E. Lee in the 1950s, the same year that we ended segregation in, in the schools and, and it not be tied to racism. So uh, that school today is over 90 percent kids of color and they finally don't have to go to a school that is named after not just the biggest traitor in our in our history, but somebody who was fighting to keep people segregated and keep people enslaved. Well, what an honor it is to get to meet you. I know your time is valuable. Thank you so much. Thank you. Lorena Gonzalez. My next guest is United States Congresswoman Katie Porter, a Democrat in her second term and wielder of the famous prop, the White Board of Justice. Here's my conversation with the Congresswoman from 2021. 
Katie Porter represents California's 45th district in Orange County, which is traditionally conservative. She's a consumer protection attorney and a law professor. She quickly developed a name for herself in her first term with tough questioning of people testifying before Congress, often using her famous whiteboard to hold CEOs and political appointees accountable. Katie Porter grew up on a farm in Iowa during the farm crisis of the 1980s. She broke with family tradition of attending state school to go to Yale and went on to Harvard Law School. She decided to run for office after Trump's win in 2016 and became the first Democrat elected in her district. Katie Porter is comfortable being a fish out of water. I like to be challenged. Um, I like to learn. And I think that was a huge part of, you know, why I chose to to go, to, you know, off to college far away from Iowa to kind of stretch myself. Um, I loved being a professor. I was a professor here at the University of California, Irvine, teaching um, business law courses and then really stretched myself when I ran for Congress. And one of the great things about being in Congress that I never hear anyone talking about, which makes me kind of skeptical, frankly, is that the great thing about this job is every minute you should be learning something, whether that's listening to your constituents, whether that's a briefing from about national security, you know, whether that's, you know, having a meeting with your staff. There's just so much to learn to be able to do this job effectively. And I, I like that. So in some ways, it's very much like being a professor. My job is to learn stuff and then to help teach. And so in this case, instead of teaching a classroom, I think about teaching my, the American people. You graduated Harvard Law School what year? 2001. So when you left there, where did you go from there? Where did you first go out of school? So I went to clerk for a federal judge in Little Rock, Arkansas. He was a wonderful judge. And uh, this won't surprise people. There weren't a lot of other law clerks who wanted to work on the bankruptcy cases. Um, And so literally, I think I got to work on every single bankruptcy opinion, the entire Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, which stretches from North Dakota down to Arkansas, worked on that year. Um, And then I went off and I practiced. I took the bar um, exam and I practiced law in Portland, Oregon. For a couple years. What led you to Portland from Little Rock? My now ex-husband is from there. Right. Family. Yeah, family. And, you know, it was a good place to practice there and then decided that I wanted to become a law professor. And I had really gone to law school thinking maybe I want to be a professor. I had thought about getting a Ph.D., Um, And at the time, the idea of writing a a book seemed really long to me, which is funny because I've now written two law textbooks that are like a thousand pages each. Um, But when I got to law school, I I really liked it. I wasn't sure what I wanted to teach. What did I love? What did I want to spend my whole career studying? And then I took Elizabeth Warren's bankruptcy class. And that was it. That was what I wanted to spend my life working on. This is why you were in law school. This is when I went to law school, my third year of law school. Tell the story, if you would, about you approach Warren after she was uh, less than cuddly toward you in class. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Elizabeth was a really great professor. Um, she called on students um, and you had to have your homework done. You had to be prepared if you showed up. And so I was a rule follower. I did my homework. I sat in the front row, which I thought would help her overlook me, but it it didn't really work out that way. And so, you know, one of the solutions to not being called on is to raise your hand. Um, And so she was asking a question and I raised my hand and I gave what I thought was a pretty good answer. And I remember her turning to me. I'll never forget. I mean, the hand gesture, I can do it today. She said, think, Miss Porter, think. 
And I remember just wilting inside because I was thinking, I was thinking so hard and I was coming up short. Um, And I went to see her after that. And I said, don't give up on me. I've never taken a course like this before. I didn't take some of the, there's a couple kind of courses you often take that are introductory to bankruptcy. And I just jumped into the deep end. I was like, don't give up on me. I really care about this stuff. And the reason I cared so much about bankruptcy was growing up in Iowa in the 1980s during Farm Aid and the tractor motorcades and watching the farming community where I grew up really struggle economically. When I got to bankruptcy, I realized there are tools in law and policy to help. Right. Now, when you made that request of Warren, did she grant it? Was she more give and take with you in the classroom? Did she really? Oh, I mean, no, it actually was the opposite. She came back to me even more because she knew I really cared. Like she knew that it mattered to me. My message to her wasn't take it easy on me. It was don't give up on me. And a lot of professors, I mean, I see this in witness rooms, actually in hearings. And um, people will ask a witness a question and the witness will stonewall, give a nonsense answer. Answer another question. Answer another question. And what my colleagues will do is they'll just give up. They'll move on. They'll start giving a speech. But just like in the classroom, when I gave a wrong answer, Warren didn't say, oh, well, let me go find someone more cooperative. She told me, think. She stuck with me as I was learning. So whenever I hear someone, you know, they give a nonsense answer, I'm not going anywhere. You said something interesting when people don't give a good answer. You know, I myself become exhausted by the unwillingness of people to answer the questions of the duly elected members of Congress. You are here, and Congresswoman Porter or anybody, you're not doing this for your health. You're doing this on behalf of your constituents and the American people. You're representing the American people. And many of them are so smug and so arrogant and won't answer your question. And I was wondering, do you find that the authority of the Congress has weakened in recent years because people feel like, what does it matter? There's no teeth behind this. So... I think that some of the things that we've been able to do with our hearings is actually restore a sense of accountability to this, which is if you, if I ask you a question and you give me a nonsense answer, I'm not going to pretend that what you said makes sense. I'm not going to accept a wrong answer. If you're dodging, if you're stonewalling, I'm going to try to get you to answer. So you would think, I mean, it's sort of been interesting to me. I remember like maybe the second or third hearing I was at, I said, well, surely you know, now everyone will come really prepared. Like I won't stump anybody anymore because they'll know that you have to show up and take me seriously. But, you know, I've been underestimated my whole life. At this point, I, I kind of exploit that. And witnesses still show up and they're contemptuous or they're unprepared. I mean, the other day, Steve Mnuchin said, well, are you a lawyer? <laughs> like, yes, I am. Like, since you mentioned it, But I think that, you know, the goal is that these shouldn't be performance art moments. They should be substantive. And so, you know, the one thing I'll say about the whiteboard is it's not about trying to go viral. Um, It's not about... It's not an antic. It's not an antic. It is a tool. And so sometimes I use it, sometimes I don't, sometimes I use other things. Whose idea was that? I don't, you know, I think it was maybe one of my staffers um, when we started. The first time we ever used it was with Jamie Diamond. We were trying to go through the budget of a worker, what a typical family would spend, and compare it to the salary and show that even though he's paying more than minimum wage, people can't make ends meet on that. 
She had $2,425 a month. She rents a one-bedroom apartment. She and her daughter sleep together in the same room. In Irvine, California, that average one-bedroom apartment is gonna be $1,600. She spends $100 on utilities, take away the $1,700, and she has net $725. $400 for car, expenses, and gas, net $325. A low food budget is $400. That leaves her $77 in the red. She has a Cricut cell phone, the cheapest cell phone she can get for $40. She's in the red, $117 a month. She has after-school childcare because the bank is open during normal business hours. That's $450 a month. That takes her down to negative $567 per month. My question for you, Mr. Diamond, is how should she manage this budget shortfall while she's working full-time at your bank? And so the idea of the whiteboard was just, instead of having all these numbers, what she spends on rent and food and rattling it all off a million miles an hour, and then he says, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? I mean, that is what every, the first refuge of every unprepared student in every classroom in America is to ask the teacher, I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? That's a courtroom tactic, yeah. Exactly. So especially in Congress, we only have five minutes. So if someone says, could you repeat that? And you've spent a minute setting up the question, you're lost. So the idea of the whiteboard was to prevent him from being able to, you know, sort of dodge and stall. And, you know, the interesting thing that he said is, I'd have to think about it. And I asked him, you know, again, and I, he said, I have to think about it. And I asked him, well, what about this? And he said, he'd have to think about it. And really, I hope he is. I hope that moment did prompt him to think. When I was doing Saturday Night Live for this long run during Trump's thing, and we would be there, and I would pitch ideas, and I wanted your character to have the whiteboard everywhere, like you were with your kids at the breakfast table. All right, let me show you. And like you have the whiteboard out, and you're drawing everything for your children and your boyfriend, and you're at the gas station, and whatever. Everywhere you go, someone is handing you a whiteboard. But I wonder, is there a distinction between when you're questioning people, not only the questions you ask, the way you ask them, again, you only have five minutes, but the way you anticipate they're going to respond when they're government administrators who are there to protect an administration. Do you see there's a difference between the two when someone who is a political appointee is before you? Are they even worse in terms of their caginess? No, not always. I mean, I think that, you know, it just depends on the witness. We try to anticipate what the witness will say. In other words, what's the obvious thing they're going to try to dodge with? Where are they going to try to misdirect us? If we, we research the witnesses, sometimes we'll watch video clips of them to try to understand kind of what they're like, um, whether they get easily frustrated, whether they launch into long, boring explanations. So I'm prepared to cut that off. But yeah. I think one of the great myths is that, you know, the Oversight Committee, where I'm so excited to be serving again in this Congress, somehow is less important or less exciting in a... Democratic administration, given that I'm a Democrat, mm -hmm. than it was when, you know, we were uh, Trump administration and I was, you know, sort of opposite. I would just tell you that these are both, oversight stays important. I mean, once we're enacting programs that I have supported and I have voted for as a Democrat, I'm even more concerned that these programs are working as intended. So, mm -hmm. The responsibility to do good oversight, it's not a partisan thing. It's part of effective government. Now, do you go back to your office sometimes and watch yourself, watch clips of yourself and review what you've done to see how effective or ineffective you think it might have been? Not usually. I mean, it's interesting after I question and when I'm questioning, I typically have no idea 
what anybody else around me is doing or saying or reacting. It's it's just me and that witness, right? I'm just looking at them. You know, I like after I questioned Postmaster DeJoy. Oh my God, oh my God. I wasn't sure that I'd made the point that I wanted to make. Now it turns out I think I did. But when I got off, I was just like, I don't think I did it. I think I messed it up. So it's often, you know, it's it's not about how I'm feeling. It's about whether it's resonating with the American people. So it often, you know, that's about how people react to it. So you can make something that you think is great, you know, but if other people don't find it moves them, then it doesn't really work. So when you're down in Southern California and you go to Orange County, it was primarily to take the teaching gig at UC Irvine? Mm-hmm. If UC Irvine is a campus inside the you know red, red, red part of California there in Orange County, what was it like for you down there working there? Was, was it a very conservative staff and, and administration and faculty? No. I mean, look, Irvine has changed a lot. And a big part of the reason that Irvine and Orange County has changed is in part the presence of the university. Um, it's a large employer here. It attracts bright and interesting and thoughtful people from all around the country and even the world. Um, and so, you know, my kids go to school um, in public school here and there are, they have some very conservative classmates. I mean, one of my former Cub Scouts. I was his Cub Scout den leader for five years. That kid actually made phone calls for my Republican opponent in 2018. So I don't know what that says about my Cub Scout skills, but, you know, know, actually there are a real diversity of opinion here, but there are very progressive people here too. There are people in the middle. There are Republicans. I like that diversity. I represent roughly equal numbers of Republicans, Democrats, and no party preference or independent voters. And what that means is on any given topic, I need to know how to talk to people who will come at it from a lot of different perspectives. And that is an incredible skill to have. And I wish all of my colleagues had it, frankly. When you went to Washington, and you talk about the importance of the work that you do within the district, but when you went to Washington, what did you think that was going to be like with your colleagues and so forth, and what did it turn out to be? I thought there would be more substantive policy discussion um, among regular members. House of Representatives is 430-plus people, so it's big. Of course. And so it turns out that a lot of things are kind of decided before they get to you, that they're decided by leadership, um, that you know the relevant committee has kind of figured everything out before it comes to you, and you're just in a situation of yes or no on the vote. And I think that's where I saw hearings as this great opportunity. Because if you're not in, if you're a newcomer to Congress, you don't have a lot of power, especially on the Democratic side, but we have a strong seniority system. But one of the few equal things about Congress is everybody gets five minutes for their questioning. So I decided I was going to use my five minutes better than anybody else or as well as I could to the maximum of kind of my ability. Um, And that's where I found the greatest reward, really. And and the thing that's rewarding for me is it's not the answers that these witnesses give because they're often really bad answers. Mm -hmm. It's that American people watch and they see that that lady is asking what I've always wondered. Why do the drugs cost so much? Right. Right? Why does the drug keep getting more expensive? Do you know what the price of Revlimid was in 2013? I can look it up, but I don't recall. I don't have it in front of me. 412 per pill. How about 2017? I would say approximately $700 a pill, but I, again, I don't have it in front of me. 719 per pill. And today, 
Revlimid costs $763 per pill. I'm curious, did the drug get substantially more effective in that time? Did cancer patients need fewer pills? She's asking about me, and that's really, for me, then the most rewarding part. You were a single mom. You got divorced when your, your kids are how old now? Uh, they're now 15, 12, and 9. So you were a single mom now for almost a decade. Yep. And do you maintain, because I know that we one of the things you focus on is about the, all the women that are uh, losing jobs. We're losing a lot of women in the workplace because of the COVID, correct? Absolutely. Huge issue. What are some of the legislation you might or might not propose to address that? So when I was elected in the last Congress, at that time, I was the only single mother of young children to serve. Since then, the Republicans have elected one. But, you know, this idea of the single household, the single parent household, isn't well represented in Washington, to put it mildly. So when we talk about issues like child poverty, one of the reasons for that is women, single women, single moms, single dads, trying to raise a family on one income, um, what happens financially to families when they get divorced. Um, it, you know, it's very difficult. And so when we see right now, what we know is about 22% of women have left the workforce since the pandemic. A lot of those are lost jobs. Some of them are women who are leaving because they're put in a position to choose between taking care of their kids um, who are out of school, remote learning, um, or you know, having to go to work and leave their kids home alone. This has long-term implications not just for women's economic opportunities and child poverty, but also for our economy as a whole. If we're a capitalist economy, we need our best and brightest doing the work, mm. competing for the jobs. And that right. means men and women, people of different backgrounds, all having an opportunity to be in the workplace. And in our country, we're losing a lot of women out of the workforce, and that's going to have big implications for our global competitiveness. It's not just a women's issue. We all benefit from a strong, healthy economy. One of my favorite phrases, and I use it all the time with my staff, is buy the ticket, take the ride, right? And this actually applies to capitalism, too. If we want to say, and you, know, you hear these people who are uber capitalists, they're, they're anti-government, they're worried about this, they're, they're throwing up this you know, ridiculous specter of socialism. Well, guess what? Inherent in capitalism is equal opportunity to compete. And, and that's true about antitrust enforcement, but it also has to be true about social mobility. It has to be that, that you're not allowing things like race discrimination to taint who you promote in the marketplace. You're paying people not because of the color of their skin, but because of how good they are at their jobs. All these things are perversions of capitalism, and we ought to be standing up for them on that basis, as well as the fact that they're morally reprehensible. Now, obviously, we have a graduated income tax in this country. The more money you make, the more you pay in taxes. Why isn't the same principle applied to these trillion-dollar COVID relief bills? Meaning, why are we giving a single penny to a family that's making over $250,000? Okay, great question. So I want to push back on a couple things. One is you said we have a graduated income tax. I want to push back on that and say... We theoretically have a graduated income tax, okay? That's what it says on paper when you look it up in the little back of the IRS booklet if you still do your taxes on paper. But in actuality, people who earn a lot often pay a lower effective tax rate because we have loopholes. We have problems in our tax system. And so we need to close that gap because a lot of people who are running around talking about how they're in the highest tax bracket aren't paying taxes in that higher bracket because of capital gains, because of all kinds of other things. The other issue with regard to COVID relief is, look, 
we definitely want to focus the help where it is needed. But we also cannot be so focused on making sure that nobody gets any help that they don't need, that we slow the whole thing down and we ultimately allow people to die and to suffer while we're waiting around. And there are people in very expensive areas um, where they were spending all of their money to make ends meet. Now, boom, childcare. You have kids. Childcare for my daughter, Betsy, when she went to the University of California Irvine Childcare, cost more than it would have for her to have been an undergraduate at UCI. <clears throat> Childcare, one year, preschool was more than it would have been for her to be an undergraduate. So all of a sudden, when you'd have all these kids out of school, people's expenses are going up, even if their income may be stable. So we have to think about the entire, the entire effect here. And here's the main thing I have to say to people. COVID relief is the financially and fiscally responsible thing to do. Mm -hmm. If we get this wrong, it will set our economy back for a decade or more. It'll be a depression. Howard Dean was on the show the other day and said the same thing. I said, do you think we're running a risk by printing trillions of dollars? He said, the problem will be if we don't spend that money. Absolutely. We have to invest it wisely. We have to make sure we're putting it into programs that are working. We have to root out fraud, waste, and abuse. Um, you know, so I think it's ridiculous, for example, that we passed a paycheck protection program, a PPP program for small businesses that allowed Congress members to get loans. That's nuts. That's a mistake in the program. But our biggest risk here is not doing enough and leaving people mired in long-term poverty, in hardship, out of the workplace with atrophying skills when other countries are not making that same mistake. So obviously the current senator there, Padilla, is uh, an appointee interim because Harris is now the vice president. Do you think that that's his seat to hold on to or does the congresswoman have other ideas about her future in California politics? I'm really excited about Alex Padilla representing me and my family um, in the Senate, and I've contributed to his re-election campaign already. Um, you know, I think he's going to be a wonderful partner and a really important voice for California. Um, he has an amazing life story. He went to MIT. He's incredibly smart. So mm -hmm. I think you can safely paint me as a fan of Alex Padilla and somebody who's really excited about working with him. He just got added to the Senate Banking Committee um, yesterday, so I told my staff, like, call him up. Let's start working on bills together. Do you think that you have what it takes to serve in the Senate? Or do you think you're better off where you are in the Congress? Oh, look, wherever you put me, I'm going to fight for the American people. I'm going to, I mean, this is, I, when I was a professor, I became a professor to understand what was wrong with our laws and how we could make it better. When I'm in the House, that's what I'm thinking about. What's wrong? How can we make it better? It's going to be the same thing whether I would be in the administration, um, whatever I go on to do after this. Um, you know, these are the fundamental questions. The fundamental question that has motivated my life is how do we achieve economic prosperity for all Americans? And I'm going to keep asking that question whatever job I'm in. Um, and, you know, I kind of, I mean, look, the house is fun. It's scrappy. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little bit chaotic. You're mm -hmm. right. Um, but, you know, wherever I've gone, I've always tried to make the most of what I've gotten. Um, and so, you know, whatever the future holds, I'm pretty sure I'm going to still be asking tough questions. The Honorable Katie Porter. If you're enjoying this conversation, be sure to subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. I really appreciate it. When we come back, Katie Porter talks about why Trump 
must be convicted by the Senate. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Can I give you a real incentive to lean into your decision to start working out and eating better? I'm Carl, co-founder of Body. That's B-O-D-I. And right now, if you sign up for a one-year subscription to Body, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you 65% off. Look, I know it's not easy to get fit and lose weight, especially if you're trying to figure it out by yourself. But we make it simple. Just follow a program for 20 to 30 minutes day by day and lose 5 to 10 pounds a month. We have over 120 programs that have been tested and proven to work, and almost 300,000 five-star reviews in the App Store to prove it. Body also has complete eating plans and thousands of healthy, delicious recipes. So stop guessing and start seeing results with Body, and I'll give you 65% off your annual membership right now so you save big on the app that CNN underscored named Best Fitness App. So don't wait. Sign up for a year of Body and save 65%. Just go to Body.com. That's Body with an I.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. When protesters stormed the U.S. Capitol building on January 6th, Katie Porter wasn't far from the insurrection. I was on the Capitol grounds um, in my office, which is not in the Capitol. Which house building are you in? Longworth, in in Longworth, and um, or as AOC has now memorialized it, the Dunkin' Donuts building, Um, (laughs) which was actually a factor in why I picked that. Um, It's very handy to be able to go get coffee in the morning. But um, I was in my office, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I passed her in the hallway as I went into my office, and, you know, she kind of, you know, she waved, and a few seconds later, she came back and knocked on the door and said, can I come in? And I said, of course. And you know, she came inside. She was obviously very rattled. There had been a bomb threat in her building. I didn't know that at the time. Um, and so we sheltered together along with a couple of staffers for about four or five hours, six hours in my office, barricaded the doors, turned the lights off, pulled the windows, 
silence the phones, just in the cold um, and the dark, you know, worried that what was going on at the Capitol where there were cameras watching, what you can't see is that there are underground tunnels connecting the Capitol to our office buildings. If the attackers had come down those tunnels, we would not have known they were coming. Um, and so we just stayed barricaded in there for hours and, and didn't know what was happening. And when you look back on it now, what do you think should happen? Oh, to protect us? I mean, look, we have to. We have a real problem in this country with um, misinformation, with with violence. Um, you know, our democracy is strong, but it is not unshakable. Um, and this was a this was a powerful kind of, I think, earthquake, a powerful shake um, to our democratic principles. So I think we have to reaffirm that it's okay to disagree. It's okay to have different ideas. I represent Orange County. I represent a lot of constituents that I disagree with. Um, that's okay. That's healthy. But violence in a democracy is never okay. You voted to impeach Trump? I did, twice. And the Senate's not going to convict? You know, I think they should convict him. Right. I think that this is, and I think too many people are thinking about this just from the punitive angle about mm. Trump. But we have a rule of law in this country. And part of that rule of law is precedent. So what we are doing here is saying this conduct was not acceptable. And if anyone it's does this again, it's not who we are. So if you're wondering, future president, whether you can act like President Trump did, the answer is no. You right. will be impeached. This is illegal. So we need to set that precedent and establish that boundary. I would have bet you everything I own at the onset of Trump's administration that it never would have ended this way. I mean, it ends. His political legacy ends on this note, one of destruction and hate and, and lawlessness and so forth, which, which defines him. You know, I've always said that the government's purpose is to do the greatest amount of good for the greatest number of people. This is not some concierge service to help wealthy Americans. And I'm wondering, what's the change you'd like to see in the campaign finance laws that will help clean that up? Yeah. No corporate PAC money is a huge part of it. Citizens United saying companies are, are people. Right. So, you know, re reversing Citizens United, stopping corporate PAC contributions, or at least forcing corporations to disclose them to shareholders and justify how this actually provides any value to the corporation. Um, I think that's really important. I think campaign finance generally, you know, I think small dollar contributions are great um, because, you know, $5, a dollar, you know, volunteering your time, people can feel themselves part of democracy, part of the process. Um, but, you know, until we clean that up, until we clean up some of the corruption, it's going to be really hard, I think, it's the source of all of the problems in this country. It's the source of all of the problems. Which committee are you on? You're on one exclusive committee? I was on an exclusive committee last Congress, which is financial services. And you're not there anymore? I'm not there anymore. Now I'm on, I was on financial services. And then later in the year, I got added to oversight when there were openings. Right. So now I'm on, I'm continuing on the oversight committee. I'm really excited about that. I love that oversight. Um, and I like doing it for all different kinds of areas. Everything from, you know, Pentagon spending to pharmaceuticals, to car seats, um, to civil liberties. Um, and then I now joined the Natural Resources Committee, which has jurisdiction over Ooh. public lands, over tribal lands, all the drilling on public lands. Um, oceans and wildlife. So, you know, I said the other day, polluters, I have questions. Um, so I'm really excited about that. It's an incredibly important issue in California. It's important to our global competitiveness in the future. The company, the, the economy, the nation that has manufacturing jobs in the next decade will be the country that figures out how to manufacture in a green way. We need that to be us. 
Bobby Kennedy Jr. used to say, let's force them to bring their products to market at their actual cost. Yep. What are the American people really paying for a gallon of gas? You throw the PCBs in the Hudson River and we have to clean it up. That should be a part of the cost of your thing. The woman who studied bankruptcy law at Harvard with Elizabeth Warren, are you sorry you're not on the finance committee anymore? Sure. I'm definitely sorry. I mean, I asked to serve because I wanted to. Um, I want to continue working on those issues, and I hope there'll be an opportunity for me to fill a vacancy in the future um, to get back to that committee. Um, you know, I'm excited to be on the Economic and Consumer Protection Subcommittee of Oversight. Um, I'm going to keep doing a lot of work on financial services issues from that. So absolutely wish I were on. What happened? You know, they just they had so many spots. They voted people on and off. I was one of two people who didn't get it. Um, right. You know, Eight or 10 people did get it. Other people were chosen. Other people were chosen. But you know what? Like, remember what I said about I've been underestimated a lot? When I went on, now people are like, oh, she can't go off financial services. Financial services is where all the the hot committee action is. Trust me, when I went on financial services, everyone was like, oh, my God, that's the most boring committee. No one's going to pay attention to you. (laughs) Let's go to Dunkin' Donuts. Right. So wherever I go, I'm going to try to engage the American people. And I don't think there is a bad committee in Congress. These are all important. Well, let, let me just say, I really mean this. People who really are so disheartened. I mean, they're crushed and demoralized by the inefficiency of the American government. They've lost faith. And then along you come. And all my friends who see you, you know what they are? They're proud of you. They're so proud of you because they get when you're there. You're not there for the self-aggrandizing. You're doing this because you care and you take the job seriously and and you're finding and honing a way to use the job, the office, as a tool You're honing a tool to do the work you want to do on behalf of the American people. So thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. My thanks to Lorena Gonzalez and Katie Porter. This episode was recorded at CDM Studios in New York City. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Our social media manager is Danielle Gingrich. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. 
Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.